Man, it's one of those rare Saturday Sundays, and you may not have a dog in this fight, and that's okay. But like most of the state, at least, can breathe a sigh of relief this morning because apparently we have two football teams in the state, and they both won last night. So, you know, if you're happy about that, that's okay. You can be happy, and uh, I'm glad you're here. And so a lot of you stayed up last night to watch the impossible happen. And I don't know, I was not watching that, but I did see the score this morning, and I... I probably had the same reaction that you did, like, good grief. But anyway, if you don't know what happened last night, USC won a football game, and they won a pretty big one. Um, Both, you know, I'm not letting my bias show, but both are pretty miraculous in any way. So we're here. Um, Man, I'm glad to be here. I haven't been looking forward to this particular passage today, to be honest. Like, I I love the Bible, and I love getting to teach all the Bible, but I also know that the past two and a half years for our country and even the church in our country has been a bit... Uh, you know, contentious, and there's been some, you know, some just some palpable tension uh, politically and things like that. And today, I believe that Jesus addresses that. And so we're all on the same level playing field. And here's what it is. Uh, let's go ahead and get that out there. We're probably all wrong. Okay. So let's start there. Let's look at what right is according to Christ, and let's let's end up there, regardless of how we came in. Uh, so let me pray, and then we're going to jump in and uh, continue our, our walk through Mark this morning. God, we love you. Thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for a day that you've set aside um, that in to the rest of the world is just like another day, but not to your church. Um, God, we are gathered together under the name of a perfect Savior under a loving Father and an inhabiting Holy Spirit so that we can glorify you with our intent, glorify you with our affections, uh, glorify you in the way in which we seek to know you better through our learning um, and also our worship. God, thank you for the worship that has already happened. Thank you for the worship that will continue through your word. We love you. We thank you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open to Mark chapter 12. And just to remind you, last week we, we talked about, we finished out chapter 11, started in, verse, in chapter 12, looking at the, the parable of the tenants, in which it started with a question, and we, we talked about we're going to be in a series of these in which uh, people are going to come and ask Jesus a question. Majority of these questions are not good intended. They want to catch Jesus. They want to find a reason to arrest him, to kill him ultimately. And so they're asking ill-intended questions. And last week, the question was basically like that indignant, who gave you the right kind of a thing to Jesus? And he said, well, I'm not going to answer you that because you can't answer anything for me, but I will answer a question about your authority. And then he told the parable of the tenants and talked about the fact that their authority had been squandered, it had been wasted, and it was going to be removed from them, the people that were leading the people of Israel, and that God was pronouncing judgment on them, and he was going to pass that authority on to, believe it or not, us, the church. And so a beautiful picture of what we get to do as the royal priesthood, called by God, redeemed by Jesus, indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, uh, kind of as a result of poor leadership and also the sovereignty and the beauty and the mercy and the grace of Jesus that was on display through the cross. And then we find ourselves here today in which there's another question that's going to be asked, and and it kind of spells it out. We don't have to wonder very much about whether this question was intended for good or bad. Scripture's going to spell it out. And then we find uh, one of these phrases in Scripture in which is often quoted, but the context is ignored. You know, the, one of the ones that comes to my mind is like Matthew 7 is probably one of the best examples of that of, you know, generally it's judge not unless you be judged by the same measure. But most people just take the one line, just like, don't you judge me? You know, and there's probably some head movement in there and, and you know, someone calling out a behavior and like, don't you judge me? Didn't you read the Bible? It says not to judge. Well, that's 
That's what it says, but that's not the context, and it's not exactly what it means if we just say that. This particular passage has a very similar line in which often it's stated, but the context in which it was stated and the meaning by which and all the implications are conveniently left out. And so today, we're not going to be able to turn over every single rock that exists here, but we're going to do our best to, to cover as many as we can. So if you have your Bibles, uh, let's go ahead and read chapter 12, verse 13. We'll read 13 through uh, 17, and then we'll, we'll kind of talk about what's going on. And it says, And they, who we'll address in just a second, sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher or rabbi, we know that you are true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So last week we had this contingent of people that Jesus was addressing because they showed up and they asked him that question, which we talked about just a second ago, of who gave you the right? And he, he kind of addressed them, and he was like, well, you answer me this, and I'll answer you that. They couldn't answer the question he posed, and then he talked to them about their authority. And it says at the end of it, uh, it says, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived, they figured out that he had told the parable against him, or against them, so they left him and went away. The people that he was addressing last week, at the end of it, they were a little upset. They were miffed. You know, if that's a word that we use in our common vernacular, it's probably not, but they were. They were miffed. They were miffed to the point to where they were like, okay, we're going to double down. We're going to double down. We are going to find a way to trap him in his words. And so these, most likely, they were the upper level of the Pharisees, probably part of the Sanhedrin. And it says now in this particular passage, it says, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees, so some from their own, and some of the Herodians to catch him in his speech. It's really interesting that they sent these two groups of people because they sent two people on opposite ends of the political religious spectrum because for them it kind of mingled in together. Their religion and their political life was all very tied closely together, almost synonymous. And so they sent some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians, both of which were Jewish by birth. Some were Jewish by practice, the Pharisees. They were the they were the Jewishish of the Jewishish peoples. You know, like they were, they were those. Like they knew the law, they wore the law, they spoke the law. They wanted everyone to see them live out the law in very public fashion. Jesus addressed them in very many ways, called them some really interesting things. And actually in Matthew, it actually says that he called them hypocrites here, not just knowing their hypocrisy, but he even called them hypocrites. Why are you trying to catch me, you hypocrites? You know, that kind of thing. Hypocrites were, were literally like the first actors that we had. They wore masks on stage, but when they would leave the stage, they'd take their masks off. Hypocrites were people that said one thing, but in reality were something else. And so the, the Sanhedrin or the leading or governing Pharisees sent some of their own to try to catch Jesus, but then they also sent some of the Herodians. The Herodians were Jewish people that weren't really practicing Jews, and they were tethered to the Romans. Like they, they had drank the Kool-Aid, and they were bought in. They were there, called by the name of Herod. Herod was the person placed in charge by the Romans to govern the people of Israel. And so they bore his name and title. And so these were people, they were Jews by birth, but they were allegiant to Rome. And so it would be like sending uh, 
<laughs> yeah, it would be like sending the head of the Democratic Party and the head of the Republican Party just to catch one person at the same time. Kind of an en the enemy of my enemy is my friend, kind of an idea. To quote a Persian proverb, I think it's Persian, but either way, old-style proverb. But basically two people that would never, ever break bread together, that would never share the two humps of the same camel as an Uber, that would never go to the same place at the same time, never do that. They wouldn't do anything together except want to fight. They saw Jesus as a common enemy to such a degree, a threat to their way of life, that they were willing to bond together to go after him and try to catch him in his speech. And so they go, and they ask the question. They ask the question, is it, not is it okay, not is it permissible, but is it lawful? Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? And so what they were hoping for, both crowds, two very, very different crowds who would have fought on any other day, but on this day were cooperating just to catch Jesus, they both wanted to hear a different response. But either way, the response that they wanted to hear would have given them permission to arrest Jesus or to oust Jesus, potentially crucify Jesus coming. But either way, they both had a different response that they wanted to hear. And so they started, though, before they even asked the question, they started with some lip service, right? Like two different people sent by the Pharisees, opposite ends of the spectrum. They go up and they're like, hey, good teacher, you're so smart. You smell so nice. You say all the right things, and you don't care what people think. That was kind of a jab right there, even though it was dressed in floral speech. It was kind of a poke. You don't care. You teach the true oracles of God. You're awesome. WTG, shorthand for way to go. <laughs> that's the way they would say it. And uh, that's what they did. They tried to flatter him to, you know, to slither their way in. Really interesting. Nobody ever does that, right? We never dress up our speech to earn favor, but that's what they did. But Jesus, Jesus is not a normal rabbi, right? He's not, he's not that normal guy. His cords look a little different. He probably didn't even wear them. His garment was probably a little dirtier. His shoes probably a little more tattered. Probably walked a lot more miles. Probably said a lot more things, and he saw right through it. And it said that he saw their hypocrisy. And, and then he even asked them, he said, but knowing their hypocrisy, verse 15, he said to them, why put me to the test with the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, the Pharisees, the Pharisees, this is what they hoped. The Pharisees hoped that he would say yes. The Pharisees hoped that he would say, yes, it is lawful in those words to pay taxes to Caesar. Because if he did, ooh, he would most definitely lose favor, but he would probably even break the second commandment. Because on that denarius, which we'll see in just a second, uh, man, there was the face of Caesar and probably the face of, of another ruler at that particular time. But either way, on there was also the inscription, Caesar is Lord, or the God is Caesar, Caesar's deity, some form, fashion, acclaiming or proclaiming that Caesar was not just a ruler or a political authority, but he was deity. And so that was an idol. Caesar had become an idol, a man-made idol. And obviously the Jewish people... The, the first and second commandment both relating to this, but the second commandment says, have no carbon images or man-made images, fashioned images before me. Do not have an idol. Don't. And so if he said, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, he would have been admitting that idolatry was okay. 
he would have also been admitting that it was okay to refer to Caesar as someone more than Caesar. And so idolatry by man-made hands, but also idolatry in figure, in like figure, that person, kind of a Nebuchadnezzar kind of an idea that, that he's not just a man, he's more than. And so he would have been just smashing the law all to pieces. So the Pharisees, because they wanted to test him, they hoped he would have said, yes, lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. Now the Herodians, on the other hand, they wanted him to say no. So, like, imagine, like, they wanted him to say no, because if he said no, then these Jewish people that were under Roman rule, uh, if he said no, it's not lawful, guess what? He was starting insurrection. He was a rebel. He was starting this political rebellion that still a lot of the Jews thought that he was going to do. So the Herodians, they had a good, pretty good assumption that Jesus was going to lead a rebellion, that that's the kind of Messiah that he was going to be. He was going to deliver them from Rome, not the eternal wrath of sin, not that, but Rome. And so they were hoping he would say you know, no, definitely not, because then they would have had grounds to arrest him. So if you think about it, like on the outside, these guys had a perfect trap, like a perfect trap. If he says yes, oh, we got him. If he says no, we got him. Either way, they had him. They thought they had it down. And so they came. Floral speech, ill intentions, came to Jesus, two warring factions, said, we're going to catch him. We're going to catch him with his words. And so they asked. And so they asked him, and his response was, why put me to the test, hypocrites? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, the denarius was like the, um, the central currency of the time. You know, there were other things, but a denarius was, was very special. It did have the inscription of Caesar. It probably had a face of the ruling party. It probably had some inscriptions about the deity of Caesar. But also it was used for a very specific census tax that every man uh, would go and pay as a person of Rome or a person of Israel. There were a lot of other coins floating around. Um, it's not like the United States where we have one form of currency, which we'll talk about in a second. Uh, it, was, it was different because there were a lot of different people coming in with different forms of currency. But in this place, in this time, the most respected was that currency of Rome and, and specifically like the denarius. The denarius represented one day's labor. So on average then, it would probably equate to about 50 bucks a day now. Give inflation maybe 75, I don't know, we're not going to get into that, but either way, I don't know, I'm not an economist, but either way, like $50 a day's labor, and so they would have to pay that tax. Roman or Jewish, they were all under Roman rule, and they would have to pay it. He said, so bring me one of those coins. It's interesting that he didn't say, go and find me one of those coins, okay? So imagine, if you will, if it was one of the Pharisees that, would a that was asking the question, and they were going ahead and assuming guilt by paying this tax, if it came from their coin purse, that's pretty funny, Anyway, so that, that's just an aside. Again, I do get kind of joyful and giddy when Jesus assaults, not assaults, but like verbally spars with the religious people, even though I'm probably them. So, but he does. He says, bring me, bring me one of these. So they bring him. They didn't have to look for it. They probably just reached in their purse and brought it. And, and he said, uh, whose likeness and inscription is on this? Who, who's on it? Almost the question of like, who owns this? Who made this? And so they, they say it, and they said to him, well, Caesar's. And then Jesus answers. He doesn't answer yes. He doesn't answer no. He basically says, give to Caesar what is his. Give to God what is his. And it says they marveled. They were astonished. The two warring factions never considered that this wisest of wise rabbis, this rabbi who taught with authority that he shouldn't have, healed people of diseases that he shouldn't be able to do, astounded the wise and just blew people's minds left and right. They never thought for a second that our trap had a single hole, but it did, and it was Jesus. 
he said, give to Caesar what's his, give to God what's his. And it said they were just marveled. Man, the tough part about this is very often this is, this is quoted as a means just to say we need to blindly obey the powers that are there or people are going to say, well, we don't have a Caesar. Either way, those are the two arguments. We need, yes, we need to obey and just subject, that's fine, or we don't have a Caesar. So either way, good and bad, kind of like these two guys, these two parties, they were wanting one answer or the other, and either way they thought they had him. We kind of do the same thing with this particular text. But understand on this, uh, Jesus is giving major instruction even for us now, especially as people who, based on our political preference, have reason to hate the other side. Because over the past two and a half, three years, like, believe it or not, and I don't feel like if you have been pushed in the same way, because I'll, I'll admit, like, I'm a recovering political kind of a guy. Like, high school, early college, like, I love politics. I was enthralled by it. I thought it was awesome. As a matter of fact, there was probably even a little bit of time where I thought, you know what, I could, I could go into politics and I could make a difference. What a stupid thing to say. But either way, I probably said something like that. Senior superlatives, guess what? I got voted as the most likely to become the next mayor of Possum Kingdom. Believe it or not, you know, and that's quite a high honor because Possum Kingdom's like a state of mind. It doesn't even have borders. And so they're like, man, you're, you're that guy. And so, like, I probably had political aspirations at one time or another. And so, but like my confession is, yes, God's moved me away from that. And I'm not putting that on you, Ricky Bobby, but either way, he has done that with me. Uh, but at the same time, over the past two and a half, three years, if you are in this country, we have all been pushed and said, you need to pick. You need to pick a side. And after you pick that side, you need to be incredibly vocal about it. With your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your kids, they all need to puppet you. You need to pick a side. And it's been, man, it's been infuriating. Now, I will say this to brag on and to be incredibly grateful for, and I've said prayers of gratefulness to God the Father about this, the Origins family has been impressive. Because I know a ton of you well enough to know that you came from very different backgrounds whose parents vote, voted quite differently than the other parents that we know in here. Very different, very diverse. Most diverse group of white people that I know. Um, and so for that I'm grateful. But I'm also grateful that in that time, where there were great opportunities to fight, it didn't happen. And so for that, not to puff your heads up or to blow your egos up, but super impressive. Super impressive and very grateful. But in this place, Jesus is talking to us who may lean on our hearts instead of lean on his guidance. In Jeremiah, we're reminded that the heart is exceedingly wicked. Who can trust it? Now, obviously, the Holy Spirit comes in, completely, completely begins to renovate that heart. But even in the meantime, there are times in which where if I just lean on my preference, I'll be wrong. If I lean on the things that I desire over the things that God desires, I will be wrong. And in this place, Jesus is addressing that. And so what do we do? How do we handle this? We're going to have a lot of passages up on the screen in just a few minutes. I, I do want to uncover as much as we can here. Um, but here's the first thing that we have to kind of toss out there. When he says, to Caesar, render unto Caesar, obviously we don't have Caesar, but we do have government. We do have government. Like if we look, oop, I left my wallet back there. I didn't bring it. But if you pull out a $20 bill or a $1 bill or a penny, our government's on there. There's a face on there. There's some statements on there. It even says, in God we trust. We're not going to get into that today. But either way, it says it. We have 
government in place. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let's throw that up there. A couple great tenets that we, we want to find. And don't have that one? That's all right. We can turn to it right here. Do a little Bible drill. Romans 13. It says, let every person be subject, making sure you didn't beat me, to the governing authorities. Whoops, let me reread that. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger of who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Continuing, therefore one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because, this, for because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The very first thing that we want to note is that government, even Roman government, was God's idea. And it was God's institution. Now granted, it's important that we notice that he's talking about the Roman government here. He's not talking about a great government. He's not talking about a God-driven moralistic government. He's not talking about a biblically mandated government. He's talking about the Roman government to the people of Rome, Christians living there in this particular text. And even when he said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, same people. Same people. And he's saying even that government, even that institution, even that organization, even though it may not be driven by a biblical ethos, was God's idea. Was God's idea. And so imagine, like, granted, if Israel had set up their perfect government, he had said this about them, we could take it and be like, okay, I can follow that kind of government. But he's talking about a government that was against Christians that was against the people of the way, that wanted them dead, that wanted them silenced, that wanted them in subjugation, that wanted them maybe, yeah, practice what you want, just, just don't talk about it. Do what you will and do it in the privacy of your homes, but don't let it come out to the markets. Like, keep it quiet. He said, even that, even that institution is God's idea. And so we have to understand first that Government, yes, is God's idea. Even Rome, it does serve God's mysterious, sovereign will. It serves God's mysterious, sovereign will. Take, for instance, Rome for an example, just, just to play it off. If Rome had not had a universal language in the form of Greek, Koine Greek, if they had not had a road system like they had developed, if they had not had an informational ecosystem that they had developed to further their, uh, their boundaries and their borders and everything else, Jesus' name would not have been made great. God even used Rome and the powers that be in Rome to share the gospel with the world. Government being his idea used for his glory and his sovereignty, even though this particular institution was against him. 
he still used them. His idea. We go back and we look at several Old Testament institutions in which, uh, like we talked about last week, that remnant of Israel was spread and the diaspora, the spreading of the Jews was sent to so many different places at different times. People that were hostile towards the followers of the one true God. God used every one of those to extend his boundaries and his reach. Even though on paper, on papyrus, they were opposed to God himself. God used them. Government was his idea, his institution, even though it looks like it is in opposition to his ways. It's his. So in this place, in chapter 13, speaking to Christians in Rome, he says, let every person, speaking of believers and others, be subject to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. At one point, Jesus, when he was on trial, he even looked and he basically said, hey, you wouldn't be in power unless my father allowed it. God can do what he will. His mysterious sovereign will can be carried out by whomever he chooses. It's not our job to question who. It's not our job to question who. And so some practical application of this particular text, plus render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, I think here is one very simple two-word statement. Pay taxes. Pay taxes. Now, hey, self-employed for a long time. I get it. And I realized that there would have been a ton of different ways for me to get around paying what the government said that I owed. And it would have probably helped our bottom line a great deal. If I would have just told a client, hey, can you just pay me in cash from here on out? I would not have been subject to the governing authorities if I did that. And therefore, I would have been disobedient. And it's very tempting because I want to take home the most money. And I can even rationally justify it to say, hey, taxation is theft. Well, it's not. God's idea, government, not mine, even when it doesn't match up with his ethos. Pay taxes. Very simple. And as a matter of fact, it's, it's right here. It says, pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Believers, this is talking to us. And there's no way to wiggle around it. There's no way. Like, there's nothing that I can do from a hermeneutical perspective to get out of this to say, uh, it's not really saying pay taxes. It is. It's saying pay taxes based on your revenue. That's what it is. So we don't skirt that. Whether you agree with the percentage, whether you agree with the method, to be honest, not your call. Not my call. Did God do the eternal math? I don't know. Mysterious sovereign will, that's not my call either. But at this place, in this time, I am a citizen of this country, and their taxation is this, and I pay that. Because I'm to be subject to the governing authorities that were placed in power by God and His will for His glory, even when we don't understand. And man, that ticks me off sometimes. I'll just be honest with you, and that's okay. That's okay, as long as I pay my taxes and realize that it's out of obedience to God. Second thing that we do with this. Um, by the way, throw up, let's throw up uh, Jeremiah 29. I know I'm going slightly out of order. Throw Jeremiah 29 up there. I love this passage, very often taken out of context, but we're going we're gonna to see how it fits here. Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. But... 
Seek the welfare, the shalom of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare or shalom, you will find your welfare or shalom. I'll tell you why I say that in just a second. This is talking to exiles spread out, put in a place in which they were not, uh, they were not naturally from. They were aliens and strangers. We are too. We're in a place that is not our kingdom. Like we've talked about this recurring theme in the book of Mark in which uh, we're talking about kingdom language, kingdom culture, kingdom ideas. To be honest, Jesus would state it and we need to echo it. This is not my kingdom. This is not my ultimate resting place. This is not the ultimate authority that is placed over me. It is temporary. It is circumstantial. It is a government placed by God's mysterious sovereign will, but it's not my kingdom. wasn't Jesus' kingdom either wasn't their kingdom where they were currently living. But he told them, he looked at them through the mouth of Jeremiah, and he said, put down roots in the form of family, in the form of gardens, do all of those things, and then, and then seek the welfare or the shalom, God's peace that only he can bring for this place so that you may also have it too, and so all of those who are there may have it as well. Not only do we pay our taxes, but we need to be the best citizens possible. And you say, well, that's a tall order. It is. But we, of all people, the followers of Jesus, should be the best citizens imaginable. There's a line, and we'll talk about that. But before that line, everything up to it, best citizens possible. And that includes putting down roots. That includes seeking God's peace for a country and a nation and a place, starting in your community, extending to your city, extending to your state, extending to a country, and all the places that it goes. We should be seeking God's peace for all of those places. We do it in prayer, we do it in function, and we do it in release. We pray for it, we, we, we work towards it, and we do it in how we send people and release people to do it in other places. We should be the best citizens ever. One way in which we do that, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, which we covered a couple years ago, it says, First of all, then I urge you that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. If we want to be good citizens and we're actually seeking the welfare, the shalom of this place, it starts with us praying. It starts with us praying, even praying for presidents that we don't like, presidents that we don't agree with, presidents that we didn't vote for. It starts with that, because here's a catch. You can't pray for someone on a regular basis that you hate. If you hate them, you won't pray for them, but I promise, if we pray for them on a regular basis, seeking good for them and peace for them and shalom for them, we won't hate them long, whether we agree with them or not. We need to be the best citizens ever, and the best citizens ever pray for our leaders on a regular, repeated, and sacrificial basis. Whether you agree with their politics or not is irrelevant. It's irrelevant because, again, we're not dictated by our natural heart. We're dictated by the very will of God, and God's will is that salvation would come to all people. Imagine what happens if God gets a hold of a president 
just for a moment, like just enter into like the imagination station. Imagine what happens if God gets a hold of the heart of the president of the stinking United States of stinking America. Like imagine, like that's, yeah, that's hyperbole, but it doesn't really stink. But imagine just for a moment what happens if he uses him for his divine purpose or her. Imagine just for a moment that usage will be preceded by the praying of God's people for the welfare of all of its people, for the peace of all of its people, for the glory of God Almighty. But we can't do it if we hate the person. We can't do it if we allow my preference to dictate my prayers. So that's the reason clearly. And Timothy, I urge you to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we, the believers, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God who desires all People, we've talked about it, Greek, all, actually means all. No wiggle. That all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. It begins with the prayer of God's people. Right now we are so stratified and so desired and so uh, split and diverse in our political affiliations. We don't even consider praying for our president very often. Because we didn't vote for them. We don't like them. We disagree with them. So why would I pray for them? Well, we pray for them because God tells us to. <laughs> and we pray for them because we should love them more than we love our preference. And we pray for them because we desire that all people come to a saving knowledge of who Jesus truly is. And imagine what would happen if it started at the top. Imagine. To take it a step further, to be the best citizens ever, it also means that we don't say things like, not my president in hashtag form or whatever. He is your president, whoever's in, a, whoever's in power, he or she. They are your president because you live in this country. Until you're no longer a citizen of this country, they are your president, whether you like them or not. And it also means that we don't say, let's go anybody. Whoever that name is drives me absolutely stinking bonkers when I see self-professing Christians throw that out there. Because I know what it means. They know what it means. To be blatantly disrespectful to the mysterious sovereign will of God is disobedient and a spit in the face of Jesus and all that he stands for, all that he died for. Christians must be better. Must be better. Souls depend on it. If we act like the world, that's all people are going to see. So suck it up, buttercup. Ditch your preferences. Choose Jesus. He died for our preferences, not so that we could keep them, but so they don't keep us back and away from God. To be the best citizens ever, we participate. If you think your tax rates are too high, they're probably too high for somebody else, so go and vote. It's the most political thing you'll ever hear me say. Go and vote. Do your research, pray diligently, go and vote. Participate. Be in your community. Seek the change that your community needs. If there's an imbalance, go after it. Try to fix it. If someone's not represented, they're marginalized, go and defend them. If there's an injustice that's being perpetuated and continuing, go and speak against it. It's our right. It's our privilege. Participate. We want the welfare and the shalom for all people. Go and do what we got to do. It may mean neighborhood watch which nobody really wants to do, but it may be necessary in your neighborhood. It may be sitting on the, the student uh, school board. 
Nobody really wants that job either, but I think our students need it. It may be just town council. It may be city council. It may be those things. Yeah, maybe you're not called to politics, but you want to see change, and maybe that's what God's calling you to do, be the best citizen that we can possibly be. There is a line. Hear me, there is a line. Acts 5.29. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. In this particular place, they were being told, um, we're going to let you go, but you can't speak of this Jesus anymore. Problem is, they had already been told by God and commanded by God that they must, and God's commanded them superseded the call of the authorities of government. The line is, if we are asked to do something that is against God's will, or we are told not to do something that is within God's will, we have the right to say, nope, I'm going to, even if it costs me my life. Zach sent a podcast out to uh, the elders and, uh, a couple weeks ago from two pastors from Afghanistan, um, who had to flee Afghanistan when Taliban control took over. But they were recounting all the things that they had done and the way that they had seen the church grow. And they were recounted a time in which God called them to go and change their religious affiliation on their government ID. Because even though the national religion is Muslim in Afghanistan, uh, you had to declare that. And it had to be on your federal ID at that point. Because they wanted to know where everybody was and what they were doing. And they felt called by God to walk into that office and say, this is who I am, this is who my family is, and we claim Christ and put that on our government ID. And they basically told their wives, we probably won't come home today. But God's told us to do it. Because their government had told them they could not. But God had told them that they had to. Crazy. Now granted, we live in a culture in which we're really not forbidden. Like we're not forbidden from talking about Christ. Our country's very young. And in that time... Whether we want to admit it or not, we've really never been persecuted. You say what you want. You may have been told to be quiet by a coworker. Probably not. You may have been told that we can't have public prayer in school. You can still pray. We've never been persecuted in this country because of our faith. But our brothers and sisters around the world, they understand what it looks like, and they've seen their family die. And most likely, they're willing to go to death too because they realize that Jesus is that valuable. As a matter of fact, priceless. So the line is, if the government says you can't, but God has says you must... We go with God. Continuing the idea, like even going Old Testament, Daniel 3.18, Nebuchadnezzar was in charge, and Daniel just says, But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They're faced with the loss of life. And they said, God may save us, God may not, but either way, Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to worship that golden image. We're just going to worship God, living or not. The line is what has God called us to do? What has God called us not to do? So that's there. I know we need to move, so we're going to move. Skipping. So he said, to Caesar what is Caesar's, but then he said, to God what is God's. So for that, I think we're probably more adept at answering that most of the time. Hopefully, hopefully, we're a little more adept at answering that. Romans 12.1 very quickly, again, to the people in Rome, it says, Paul Paul says, I appeal to you, or I beg you, I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This idea is thusia, which is a, a walking, breathing, living sacrifice, something that we have given over to God with the expectation that it's not done, but it's going to be used. The things that we give to God, just that. <laughs> just that. Everything from head to toe, everything in between. 
a walking, living sacrifice. And believe it or not, even the things that we give to Caesar, they're God's, but it's permissible for us to give to him by God, through God, for his glory. So everything. Everything. Like, kind of like what we talked about last week. Of like, we need to begin to view the things that God has given us as his, because they are. And steward them as such. From head to toe. That's his. That's his. Romans 6, 13 uh, talks about this idea before verse 12. It says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those, those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instrument for his righteousness. Your gifts, your talents, and everything that you've been given. Yeah, give that to God and understand it's not for the purpose of sin, but it's for the purpose and the glory of God. Whatever you've been given, it's his. He gave it to you for you to steward, to watch over, to take care of for a while, but it, make no mistake, it belongs to God. Just like I do. Just like all of us who have been called by Christ, redeemed through Him for His glory. We belong to God. Everything. Everything. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 14 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the emperor as supreme or to governors sent by to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And so this thing right here, even this idea of yielding unto Caesar what is Caesar's, this particular passage actually reminds us that what we yield to Caesar is actually for the sake of God. It says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, even the things that we yield to Caesar, even the things that we yield to the government. We're doing it for the sake of God, for the sake and glory of Jesus. So yes, to Caesar, just a few things. But to God, it's not the leftovers. No, it's all of it. That's what's his. That's what we render unto him. Those are the things that are his. It's money, it's time, it's our future, it's our past, it's our present. All of it. I think, you know, to some people say, man, that, that puts a huge burden on us. But I think what we need to listen for is the simplicity of it. The simplicity of it. That if it's all God's, man, we don't have to pick and choose. We don't have to put things in one column and some things in another column. There's just one column. And it's all his. We give all of that to Him. Now, granted, the ways that we do that are going to vary greatly based on circumstance, based on situation, based on calling, based on gifting, based on resources, all of that stuff. But either way, we must start with the supposition that it's all His. And He's just asking me to watch over it and give some of it back. But I think here's the, here's the main idea with both of those things, that this can't happen unless we do this. We just have to trust God over our preference. We have to trust God over our preference. The election didn't go the way you want. Trust God over your preference. You're not making as much money, taking as much money home as you would like because of taxes. Trust God over your preference. You don't understand the place that God has put you in for the reason that he's put you there, for the season that he's put you there. Trust God over your preference. Like God has a desire. God has a will. God has a plan it's not always our job to understand it. It's not always our job to rationally work our way through it. It's just our job to accept it and to trust him with it. He's after his glory. He's after his mission. He's after his will. He's after his purpose because he's worthy of all of those things, and he's the only one that is. Not me, not you, not us, not we, just him. And so at some point, we not only start with the supposition that it's all his anyway, but we just have to start with this place, end with this place, continue in this place, that, God, I can trust you with it. 
I can trust you with it all. And man, I know that's hard. I get it. I get that it's hard. But it's also so much simpler. It's so much simpler. Be obedient with the things that we've been called to be obedient with. Trust God in the process. Allow him to work through it. We may even learn something in the process, believe it or not. We may even be sanctified in the process, believe it or not. And he's going to get the glory one way or the other. One way or the other. If some of this bothers you, I would like to apologize, but I'm not going to. Because it bothers me, and I think that it should. Um, as someone that does fight political leanings, I do. I fight it. There are things that I want to say, and I find myself saying, you know what? It's not profitable. It's not going to help anything. Uh, and sometimes still it slips out. Um, I confess that I struggle with these things. But I confess that my goal is to trust God with all of it, regardless of my preference. And let him work. Let him move. Let him receive the most glory possible so that many may know so that many may call on Jesus as Lord and nothing else. Nothing else. Let's pray together. God, we love you. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for difficult teachings. Um, and God, thank you for the wisdom of Jesus. That obviously is not God, is not uh, obviously not man-made religion, but it comes from you. Um, God, thank you for the ways that maybe it just, it hurts. It stings a little. But God, thank you for the way that you use it. Today, Father, in, in deference to Scripture, God, we pray for President Biden. We pray for those in House, those in Senate, those governing at the state level. Uh, you know their names. You know their call. Um, God, you know their heart. Father, we pray that you would give them wisdom that does not belong to them. We pray that you give them guidance. Father, we pray that your voice would be the loudest in the room no matter who is yelling. And Father, we pray for you to receive the glory and for the things that you do through them, people would come to know you, even if it doesn't make sense. Your ways are mysterious. Your pathways are sometimes hard to find, but God, they're there. God, and I pray that you would move amongst those who govern. And God, I pray your name would be great, even if America's name is not. We pray that your name would. God, we also pray for our brothers and sisters around the world in which uh, the lines that we talked about that we really don't have to think about very much. They see them every day. And they have to seek you and your wisdom as to whether or not to go against the government in order to be obedient to you. God, we pray for their provision. We pray for your glory to come of it. God, we pray for your name to be made great. And we pray for others to come to know you and give their lives to you. Um, maybe their lives will be short, to be honest, God. Their lives here as a result of calling on you. But Father, we pray that your glory will be great. Uh, and God, we pray for, I pray for this family me included, uh, that your will would be more important than our preference. God, that your voice would be louder uh, than our doubt, our fears, and maybe even our pride. And God, that you'd receive the glory. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the mission that rests in him and through him and for his name. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.